Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Sir Jeff Mulgan. Sir Jeff is professor at University College London, UCL. He was CEO of Nesta, the UK's National Endowment for Science, Technology, and the Arts, and the Young Foundation Director of the UK Government Strategy Unit and Head of Policy in the Prime Minister's Office. Past books include The Art of Public Strategy and Big Mind, How Collective Intelligence Can Change Our World. His latest book, Another World is Possible, How to Reignite Social and Political Imagination, has been published in 2022. His Twitter handle is at Jeff Mulgan, and his website is the same, jeffmulgan.com. And it's a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you this morning? Morning for me, afternoon for you. Pleasure to be with you today. You know, I, I loved the book. And as I was telling you in a little bit of our preamble before I actually hit the record button, is this concept of imagination how important it is to our collective well-being, our future, has has been something that has been a, a thread throughout the history of the deep dive. It's been a thread in, in my work, both as a host of the show and as a cultural anthropologist and strategist, someone who works with other organizations. It, it comes up quite a bit. I, I wrote a very long piece literally around the same time last year focusing on, on imagination. So this is a a topic near and dear to my heart. Obviously, it is to you because you've devoted hundreds of pages and, and I'm sure hundreds more to this idea of imagination. So I, I don't want to editorialize too much, even though I am often guilty of that. But I, I want to give you an opportunity to just share with us why you landed on this topic of imagination. And then I want you to describe what is imagination, right? It's, I know it's the first chapter in the book, but I want to give you like an opportunity to share both of those ideas with our listeners. Well, thank you. Let, let me start off with the, the why. Why did I do this? So as you sort of said in your introduction, a lot of my working life has been either working in governments, including in the US, sort of framing policies, working on what happens in welfare or schools or jobs, and quite a bit working sort of bottom up with social entrepreneurs and community projects. But generally, the world of the quite practical, you know, trying to fix things and change things and solve problems. But over the last few years, I became more and more aware that even the people who are sort of right in the midst of social change often really struggle to describe, to picture what our society might be like a generation or two into the future. And I started interviewing lots of people from sort of you know, ecological activists to social entrepreneurs and then business leaders and others. And what I found is they didn't find it difficult to describe future disasters. All of us can picture very clearly, you know, climate catastrophe of all kind. We see it on our on our TVs uh, every, every year now. And also people didn't find it that difficult to picture technological futures, you know, rampant artificial intelligence and robots and drones and driverless cars. Again, we're bombarded with these pictures. But if you ask, well, what might your, you know, your de democracy look like or your, you know, your local health system or primary schools or libraries or parks, all these things, people really struggled. And I became convinced that we have a crisis, actually, of imagination, that we've lost a capacity which maybe was stronger a few generations ago to picture plausible, desirable ways for our society to go. And I think this fuels all sorts of other malaises in our politics. It contributes to this striking pattern, which I mentioned in the book, if you survey people there's now large majorities in most country, countries expect their children to be worse off than them. And that's the first time this has happened since the Industrial Revolution, that that sense of a better future has been, been crushed. And so that made me want to, in the book, partly look at the past of imagination. How had people thought long into the future and how do they use that to animate practical change in the present? I try to diagnose why has this happened now? What's gone wrong? 
and then also to suggest some of the methods we might use to reignite our social and political imagination. You know, when I was when I started reading the book, I, I saw a lot of myself in the book, right? Not not from the perspective of enacting a lot of these programs, but when asked to take a look at the future. I, I try to stay away from terms like pessimistic and optimistic. I, I, I feel like those are kind of pigeonhole terms to try to trap me into like, or us into one perspective versus another. So I, I often find that trouble, like a troubling way to frame something, right? Because I, I, I might be speaking on a panel or something or doing a talk. And at the end of kind of this survey of the world, people be like, well, you're optimistic, right? So I always feel like they're like ask, asking me to like, put a cherry on the end of like something that might be difficult to deal with, right? So that's kind of my background on why I try to uh, avoid that. But as much as those terms are imperfect terms, I kind of default to, yeah, I'm not particularly like optimistic <laughs> on like, like the direction of the United States, for example. People who know me in my private life will say, I always refer to this as like the Titanic, right? This, is the, <laughs> yeah. this ship is sinking. It's a matter of how long it will take to sink, you know, but it's sinking, right? Like everything tells me it's sinking. And I will often also say to your point that it's it's due to an incredible lack of imagination, that the, the United States has no viable view of itself in the future, right? It only sees itself through this eye of like hazy, misty-eyed nostalgia, mm. right? Some yesteryear. Um, and I would argue the UK is much the same, right? So I'm curious how you capture this idea of imagination while also not avoiding, but do you also find it difficult framing things away from pessimism's optimism when you talk about imagination? Yeah. So look, in 2023, in Europe too, it's quite easy to be pessimistic. We have a, you know, a recession hitting pretty much every country. We've got a brutal war on the other side of our continent affecting all of us. Thousands of ref Ukrainian refugees here in the UK and in the town where I, where I am at the moment. So it's pretty hard to be in a sort of blandly optimistic about the state of the world. And I basically say to people who ask, just like you said, are you optimistic or pessimistic? I say, I don't know. How, how can anyone know? And I give the example in the book, which actually influenced me a lot, which was a, a relative of mine in New Zealand who was a novelist in the 1930s and 40s, wrote a very iconic New Zealand novel about life in the Depression, who then went to fight in the resistance in Greece against the Nazi occupation and was clearly a very, he ran the resistance in a whole you know, region, blowing up trains and so on. And then in 1945, went to Cairo and killed himself because we think he was so pessimistic about the state of the world. He saw the monarchy being reinstalled in Greece. The people he had been fighting with were all you know, on the wrong side. But I was brought up to see 1945 as a great time of hope. It was probably the most optimistic year in British history in the last 150 years. We created a wealth, welfare state, a health service. There was a complete sort of shift in society. And across you know, Europe, it was the, the year of liberation from the Nazis. And I just concluded, you'll never be able to judge your own time accurately. You may be stupidly optimistic or stupidly pessimistic, but don't get too hung up trying to fit things into these categories. But do try and see what's the reality and where can you make a difference. And one other thing which has struck me actually talking about this book in Europe in particular is in relation to climate change. So most young people are incredibly pessimistic about climate, rightly so. You know, the world is on track to temperature rises much more than the 1.5 degrees which we were targeting. And so it's almost certain there will be many more you know, climate catastrophes and instability and so on. But then I ask people, okay, so how's, how's your country doing? And they all say, oh, of course, emissions are going up. And in fact, if you look at the data in the UK, for example, carbon emissions have roughly halved in the last 20 years even if you include imports. And I, I worked on the strategy 20 years ago, so I'm a little bit sort of party pre on this. Many other countries too have actually made surprising progress in shifting their emissions. They've often moved away from coal. They brought in much tougher, you know, building standards. They've, you know, shifted like Norway to huge use of electric cars. And yet even the activists often aren't even aware of this. They only talk about 
the disaster in a pessimistic frame, which says everything is getting worse because they think that's what's going to mobilize people to take to the streets. But the problem is, by not being even accurate about the progress, the insufficient progress we've made, many people respond to that by just being fatalistic and say, oh my God, there's nothing we can do about it. These problems are so big, you might as well just give up and, and, and have fun in your life. So I think somewhere between pessimism and optimism, there is a kind of hard-nosed realism about the facts, which is sometimes you know, positive and sometimes negative. And then you've got to work out what can I do in my context of the present to make a, a, a difference. And I probably do have a slight instinct to optimism, but I guess my fear that is that the moment the brightest minds, the most committed activists have, I think, overshot to an excessive pessimism they don't realize actually the world is malleable. You can make a difference. You can shift directions. And even on something like climate change, which we have good reason to be pessimistic about, a significant number of countries have made huge changes to their economy and society in a relatively short space of time. We just don't, just don't talk about it enough. And so we, we, we underestimate how much could be achieved in the next 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think... Yeah, I, I feel the the glass half empty, half full kind of push pull in terms of of those those sorts of frames, um, particularly around around climate change. One of the one of the things I'll I'll ask or offer is is the perspective on when we're talking about imagination, we're talking about the future, right? Like to a certain extent. In in your book, you do an excellent excellent job of talking about the imagination of the past as well, in order to do a, I, I thought a very effective compare and contrast, but I think usually when people hear the word imagination or imagine, they're thinking about something in the future, even if that future is just tomorrow, right? Like, so it doesn't need to be fifty years, but it's something in the not present, right? And when I think about issues around climate change, because I, as I said in the beginning, I live in the United States, but my family is um, from the West Indies. So we're talking island communities in one case, Barbados, and then Guyana, a South American country in the other, much less island-based, but similar coastline, that kind of stuff. So I, I referenced that because to a, a large parts of the world, the worst effects of climate change are not in the future. They're here now in the, in the present and affecting their lived experiences very dramatically, far more than those of us in sort of the global north or western world, whatever we want to use to categorize, basically where it's not a lot of people that are dark, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so whatever catchphrase we're using for that, that's the one. So I wonder how this notion of understanding the future and how we can affect it matters depending on where you're sitting. If you're sitting in Sweden, your your perspective might be one thing. If you're sitting in Pakistan, it could be another, you know, relative to your ability to make change, right? So how do, how do we factor that in to some extent? So I absolutely agree with you. And in almost any field, if you face an existential risk, you have to respond quite differently and much more dramatically than if you don't. If you're in Ukraine at the moment, you know everything has had to change in the last 12 months. I work quite a bit in Bangladesh, which is very severely threatened by climate change and rising sea levels because it's a low-lying country with a huge population. And they're actually doing extraordinary things there to try and better monitor cyclones and floods and threats and to try and think through how on earth do they avoid the very predictable crises of the near future. And it's quite impressive, but it is existential. And an even more extreme example was a couple of days ago, the island of Tuvalu in the Pacific, which is one of the islands which may fairly rapidly disappear because of rising sea levels. They said they were going to try and create almost a parallel nation in the metaverse to sort of go digital. Now, quite how that works. I don't know. But it's uh, in a sense, it poses the question, what will be done also with places like the Maldives, these countries which may physically disappear, but want to retain some sense of themselves as a nation, some coherence, some, some meaning. And this seems to be exactly the kind of challenge to practical imagination, which we need to address. But as you say, in much of the world, climate change is still a rather theoretical thing. It's something which happens elsewhere. 
Whereas in much of sub-Saharan Africa, places like uh, Bangladesh, uh, and I was actually last night with some friends from Australia. Australia is the world's worst offender in terms of carbon emissions uh, for all sorts of reasons of their transport systems and their air conditioning and so on. And 10 years ago, I was working with the government when it tried bring in the world's first carbon tax to really ratchet up action on climate change and was defeated mainly by Rupert Murdoch and his media who campaigned very effectively against it. Ten years later, after the most extraordinary forest fires right across Australia, the whole mood has changed and pretty much everyone accepts there has to be a dramatic shift in, in how they live, in how the economy works. And the new government is at last, you know, trying to take responsible responsible action. But it was only when climate change, they moved from being something theoretical to being something where people saw their friends, you know, houses being burnt down, saw lives being lost, saw billions of, of creatures wiped out, which is what happened in the, the first two years ago. That then uh, has prompted action. And I suspect, you know, human beings, we're all a bit lazy Inertia is our natural tendency. We only really change when we have to change, I suspect. It's interesting that, um, because as you were reflecting, I was thinking about your your 1945 and this this post-war. So I'm going to try to relate this question to a little bit of that notion of the past. As 1945 was this watershed moment that was optimistic from your perspective, right? We'd come out of World War II fought the Nazis successfully. And there was this explosion of growth all around the world. And so I wonder, listeners of the show will know that I am staunchly anti-capitalist, right? So that's, let's go into it with the, with that mentality. And so that it often comes up in conversation. So it's going to come up in this conversation, right? And I, I look at that moment and I say, that's probably one of the, the 20th century's moment of like peak market economy capitalism, right? You're you're coming out of a of a highly destructive global war and the victors now have the ability to basically set the stage for what will be incredible market growth. And we have that pretty much uninterrupted for, I don't know, 30 years, 70s, stagflation, oil, all that kind of stuff. Right. So very quick line history. Since then, I feel like we've seen this neoliberal capitalism that has been purely extractive and is the pessimism that we're feeling and seeing the recognition of the limits of capitalism right like if you if you were in 1955 you could conceivably say yeah you know 1975 i'm going to go from guy on the line to the manager right and i'm going to blah 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 I don't know if you can say that now, right? Like, I don't know if you enter the workforce, you can say, yeah, you know what? My salary is going to keep up with the cost of living. I mean, I live in a city with $5,000 apartments, right? And these are shitty apartments, mm. <laughs> right? And, and we're not all making like two, $3 million. So I said a lot, but I'm curious if what the pessimism that we're feeling is a reality check on the prevailing imagination, which is capitalism and its inability to provide for a future that is actually better. So let me offer a slightly different version of history. There was a a wonderful piece published last month by some Norwegian researchers, which looked at how the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 had an extraordinary effect in other countries, including the US, in essentially forcing the ruling classes, the capitalist classes, to make a whole series of concessions on welfare and trade union rights and so on, solely to stop revolution. They were so terrified of revolution, they changed the model of capitalism to some extent. And to me, 1945 took that a whole step further. Throughout the 20s and 30s, there was fairly laissez-faire capitalism in many countries. But after the war, a quite new social contract was essentially arranged. So in many countries, including the US, the trade unions became much more powerful. The state took much more responsibility through things like the GI Bill. Marginal tax rates for the richest in the US, I think, were in the about 90% by the 1950s. This was definitely not the kind of capitalism Milton Friedman or Ayn Rand would have, would have approved of. And that then turned funded 
in time, you know, welfare and interstate highways and all sorts of other things. And in Europe, it meant a quite different kind of capitalism, which included a welfare state and state provision of, of health and pensions. So dramatically different from, as it were, the pure capitalism, which probably some people, you know, the capitalists really wanted. It was a, it was essentially a, a massive social compromise with countries like Sweden, the extreme. It had been almost in civil war in Sweden 20 years before, but after 45, ruled by social democrats, there was a com- much better balance between labor and capital. Now, 30 years later, after the most extraordinary growth in human history, that deal had fallen apart and atrophied. And that's where neoliberalism came in and started, you know, reducing the regulations, reducing worker rights, reducing the uh, the tax rates. And we then had 20 or 30 years of almost an opposite, a return to a much harsher kind of capitalism. And there I totally agree with you. I think that kind of capitalism has not been good for lots of people. You know, in the US, half your society is, essentially has stagnant incomes for 30 or 40 years. We've got a bit the same in, in the UK and other parts of Europe. So the system no longer works for people fairly objectively. And housing for young people is a very striking uh, example of that. For me, the interesting question in a way is, can we, can we create new kind of deals, new social contracts, which put capitalism in its, in its place, as we've done before in our history, don't allow it to become so dominant, so ideologically dominant, culturally dominant, politically dominant, where they literally pay for the main parties in, in our parliaments. And my concern right now is we don't have an equivalent of the 1917 Bolshevik revolution to frighten the elites into making enough concessions. So as I said a few minutes ago, you know, the thing which really drove social change in the late 19th century and then after 1917 was essentially elites' fear of revolution, of being, you know, put up against the wall and shot. And I don't think there is an equivalent fear in the world's elites today. They're willing to talk a bit about social justice and equality and climate change, but there's not that sense of almost the survival threat, which I think there was at times in the 20th century. And that's why my fear is we won't make sufficiently radical changes to our economic and and social system. Ten years ago, I wrote a book about, original title was After Capitalism, prompted by the 2007-8 crash, and looking exactly at, it was title was The Locust and the Bee, this predatory kind of capitalism, which was extractive, which was essentially a locust-like version of capitalism. But I also said there's another side of capitalism, which is quite creative and quite productive and often is better at solving problems than a fully planned economy. And our question is, can we rein in the locusts and in a sense, support the bees, the more creative, entrepreneurial, innovative side of capitalism. And I set out a whole series of policies, which I thought would be kind of straightforward. But I actually misjudged history. In fact, it's only really now, 10 years later, I think the world is more in a mood to consider those options. Back in 2012, in almost no country in the West was there actually an appetite for those more fundamental reforms to the very nature of economic system. And I think you know, a big mistake your government made after the financial crash was putting Wall Street guys essentially in charge under Barack Obama and essentially not changing the system, essentially asking them to rebuild the old system, not to transform it. Absolutely. And it's, I'm a product of that system. So I, I, under, I understand it deeply and its, and its corrosive nature. And, and I think our synopsis are more similar than dissimilar in the sense that, you know, a lot of good things came out of of that exchange. And one of them, I want to get to um, Obama, actually. I'm not going to right now, but he's in my notes (laughs) um, to to talk about when it comes to imagination. But I'm going to hold on on Obama. But I am going to continue a little bit more on this sort of, I guess, the locus and the bee relevance, right? Because I think the perspective of a thing, there's always like levels going on in in terms of how to understand these movements and culture and history, you know? So again, I agree with the assessment of the post-war world, the 1945 post-war world. But I can also reflect that at the same time that you're seeing this incredible growth 
in the United States, there's huge portions of the population that are excluded, legally excluded from from those things, right? So you can have black soldiers fight in World War II and they were excluded from the GI Bill, right? These towns that were built post-war to kind of welcome back soldiers and kind of the rise of the American suburbs through redlining and, and all that kind of thing, black people, again, excluded from that, right? So this incredible amount of progress that kind of puts a white middle-class structure in place that can act as a sort of, you know, a buttress, you know, to your point against the the capitalists, right? There's a whole group of people excluded from that, right? And still reckoning with the the ramifications of having missed out on that boom from a generational perspective, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so it makes me think as we talk about imagination and the past and how those relate to one another, how do we better connect to those communities that, in my opinion, are the ones actually having to more actively imagine a better future. You know, because when I look at just, I'm born in 1972, right? Like, so I said, I'm 50 years in, right? What the movements that I've seen that have been most significant in my lifetime have well, a little bit before my life, then was civil rights movement, right? Which without that, I would not be having this podcast, right? The nuclear proliferation movement in the 80s, anti-apartheid also in the 80s. And then I always throw in Occupy, right? I, I feel like Occupy changed everything because it's the first time conversations even about capitalism and its reality are now in the mainstream. You know, so I'm not saying people were not discussing these things, but they were discussing them on like college campuses, right? And like things like that. Until Occupy and its fallout, I'd never seen like mainstream CNN talking about capitalism. Should we have it? You know, Milken Institute. Can we reform capitalism? I mean, this is literally something named after Michael Milken. And and they're discussing these things, right? To some to what extent they believe it or not, that's I'm gonna put that aside but it's on a platform where it would never have been a serious conversation. So I'm wondering when we talk about imagination, how do we more frame those movements? How do we find and extract useful tools to project a better future? You know, does that make, did that make sense what I'm trying to get at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let, let me offer a, again, a sort of complementary history and I'll talk more from a European than a US point of view. So one of the things which really struck me looking again at the 19th century history was the strength of working class political movements and working class political imaginations. So not the college campuses, they didn't exist then. So in 1848, for example, London had its biggest ever demonstration. They were called the Chartists, a working class movement demanding everyone had the vote. Uh, at a time when that definitely wasn't the case. Uh, A few years later was demanding eight-hour working days, for example, and later holidays. There were working-class reading clubs, libraries, microcredit insurance. And out of that was an extraordinary flowering of utopian thinking. In the US at that very time was, I think, what was then the third biggest-selling book ever in US history, which was... um, and of course, I can't remember his name, but the uh, Utopia, I think it was 1888, which portrayed a future in the US without private property, essentially a socialist society, but also with push button music in your living room and home deliveries and all sorts of things, you know, extraordinarily a rich sort of picture of, of possibility. And I think, and in that time, it was very normal to talk about do you want capitalism or not? And actually, most of those people said, no, we don't really like capitalism. We want to move to a different system. Uh, I would say, again, in the, in the, you know, the fact that we had, in some countries at least, serious social progress in the 40s and 50s came because a lot of serious work had been done before the Second World War, detailed planning on how you run an economy, trade union rights, the creation of the UN, all these things were, were planned and thought through before they happened. And again, a lot of the mainstream then assumed we wouldn't want to go back to a laissez-faire capitalism. That was thought to be something which had been experimented with and had clearly failed because it let people down so badly in the in the 20s or 30s. So I think the period you're talking about more recently where no one discussed capitalism is the historical anomaly, actually. That was unusual that capitalist neoliberal thinking became so powerful, so hegemonic, that it squeezed out any thought about uh, alternatives. And 
again, this is one of the things which, which led me to write that previous book was I talked to lots of economists and asked them very simple question. Okay, what's your picture of what happens after capitalism? <laughs> you know, capitalism is obviously not going to be historically eternal. Nothing is in human society. So how do you think about what might come after it? And almost no one trained in mainstream economics can even sort of frame the question, let alone answer it. So there'd been a sort of massive intellectual narrowing happened, I think, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, which meant the serious work hadn't been done on capitalism. And let me just end with on this. The, the, the metaphor I used in, in that book was actually prompted by monarchy. I live in a monarchy still, just about. I'm going later today to the Netherlands, which is a monarchy. Now, 200 years ago, if you read the history books, monarchy was basically present everywhere. It had been re, except the US, had been reintroduced into France. And most intellectuals at that time thought democracy was something which had been tried and failed. The monarchy was the natural order of things. It fitted human nature. You know, we were basically designed to want hierarchy and rulers and so on. And in the future, the only question is whether your monarchs had huge empires or small monarchies. Now, what then happened, to many people's surprise, over 100, 150 years, in countries like the UK or Sweden or the Netherlands or Denmark, monarchy didn't disappear. We had previously cut the head off our king. We didn't do that again. Instead, monarchy basically became less and less important. It was pushed to the margins of society, became more and more symbolic. And I think that's the metaphor we should think of in relation to capitalism. At the moment, it appears all dominant, just as monarchy was 200 years ago. I don't think we're going to have a single revolution which just wipes away capitalism in one go. Instead, I think the optimistic view of the future is that the power of capital markets and capitalism and capitalist thinking just becomes shifted more to the margins of our society. It doesn't dominate how we think, how we feel, how all our arrangements are, are, are made. Already in you know, much of Europe, half of GDP is spent by the state anyway, in countries like France or Sweden. We all depend on families, which are hopefully hopefully not run as capitalist institutions. That's a bit of a miserable, you know, prospect. So I think it's entirely plausible that, you know, maybe in a generation or two's time, capitalism is a fifth, perhaps, you know, or less of the of the GDP. And the rest we organize on rather different principles of sharing or giving or, you know, mutuality and so on. And that's almost the metaphorical frame, which then is the starting point for creative imagination about how do you actually run food or energy or transport or health or democracy in a largely post-capitalist society, rather than the picture of a kind of 1917 revolution or 1949 in China revolution, where at a stroke, you wipe out all your past social arrangements. And I think one thing we learned in the 20th century, that's not a very smart thing to do. <laughs> you, you pay a very high price for year zero politics. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to that point, you made a very interesting, like something leapt out in, in your statement, which is, you know, when you were interviewing folks about the future of capitalism, asking these questions, you know, you're talking to economists, you're talking to these different folks. And one of the things I, I often try to do in, in my work and I think about is, you know, are are the people that are the so-called trained folks, are they the ones best suited to answer the question? Right. Because when I when I think about communities that are that are are steeped in some of these practices already, they're not economists, right? They're not captains of industry. They're just folks actually living lives. They could be doing any number of things, right? But they've learned to set up these processes around, like, like you said, giving and mutuality and, and other ideas. So should we be finding and uncovering those imaginations that are already operating? Because the the status quo imaginations are kind of what I what I refer to it as they're captured already, right? Like there's incredible imagination capture into like market solutions, right? It's one of the things I, I lecture on all the time that when you when you propose an idea, one of the first things that the serious people will ask is, well, what's the market for that? And can you show me what the ROI for that is? And like we're already framing it in a market way, right? So if the idea doesn't have a viable economic frame, the idea is not worth pursuing. And, and that's what I mean by imagination capture, right? Of the marketplace. Absolutely. And I think you should never expect the incumbents, the people who succeeded in one system 
to be very good at imagining a different system. It's kind of not, it's not surprising that the system which uh, thinks they're wonderful and gives them lots of power and money is a system they will tend to think is rather wise and rather natural. And always in you know human history, the, the radical ideas come from the margins. They, they come from people who are somewhat outsiders, somewhat rejected, somewhat excluded. And that gives them, as it were, the freedom to think freshly. I think the other side of this, where there's really interesting, quite recent evidence on this, show is the evidence showing that experts, people with deep expertise in a technical field, are often really bad at actually making judgments about the future. And we see this again and again in predictions, but also in understanding processes of change. So what I, I work in a university, and one of our tasks often is to get the experts to slightly unlearn in order to make sense of the world there around them. And economists are not particularly unusual in that respect. They just get trapped in a way of thinking, and they, they genuinely assume this is just the way the world works rather than just a representation of the way the world works that they've become uh, familiar with. And in the work of government, the last generation, I think, has seen a, a really dramatic and healthy change, at least in some places. So back in the 60s and 70s, Probably most governments did use technocrats. They used economists and experts to design policies. But increasingly, it became clear that they often didn't understand the lived experience, the reality, or indeed the solutions which were being generated by people who were living the problems and who were at the sharp end. And so this whole language of co-creation, co-production, etc., has become quite widespread all over the world as a quite different way of thinking about the practice of government and policy, where you, from the start, involve the people who will be living with the results of the policy in the diagnosis of the problem, in identifying the solutions and implementation, rather than seeing this as something done by experts or bureaucrats to a, a grateful population. And to me, that's a much healthier way of, of doing things. And I work quite a bit with the UN now, who has, based in New York, this, for example, this network of accelerator labs in 100 countries. And that's very much the spirit in which they've been trying to work is radical innovations which draw on the creativity and expertise of the grassroots, not of the so bought-in consultants in New York or, or London or wherever else it may be. Sadly, many of those methods are not used actually in the US federal government or my national government, which I think are rather behind what is, is best practice. We need expertise for all sorts of things, but we also need to know the evidence on expertise shows that it has serious limits and becomes deeply distorted and is particularly bad at imagination. Absolutely. You know, and I, I want to use this as a question. I want to bring Obama back into the conversation, right? Before I before I lose the track on my Obama. And the reason why I, I had in my notes to talk about Obama, because before Obama, I lived in a world where I never thought I would see a black president. Like this was this was something that might have been in in a way like the, the the way communities talk to each other are different, right? So there are like lots of like inside jokes that black people would have about the fact of why we won't ever see a black president. That they're jokes, but they're also an admission of the pervasiveness of racism, right? Because the joke can only exist because the current world looks in a way where you're like, that shit ain't never going to happen, right? And, and I remember as recently as the late 90s, they had a comedy tour with like four or five Black comedians went out on tour. And one of the jokes within one of their sets was how and why we will never have a Black president, right? And this was in, let's call it, I don't know the exact date when the Kings of Comedy dropped, but it's like 98, 99 time. And literally 10 years later, Obama. Right. Mm -hmm. Obama yeah. lands in 2008. And I think that that is a, one of these moments where I'm like, nobody saw that shit coming. <laughs> right. Like nobody saw that shit coming. So is there a part of imagination that is also tied a little bit to serendipity? Like it's just something that we're not going to be ready for until it's happening. Right. Because I, I think about the fall of the Berlin Wall. Right. Went to school one day, Berlin Wall came home, Berlin Wall's gone, right? Like people are sledgehammering and like something I never thought I would have seen, right? I was in high school. You know, my reality had been impending nuclear doom. Yeah. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, this shit's over. Of course, <laughs> on the ground in Berlin, I know it took more, right? 
But to a, a 15 or 16 year old kid in Brooklyn, it was like the world changed. Well, going, going back to what you said earlier about the experts before 89, all the experts about the Soviet Union thought it was inconceivable. The Soviet Union would collapse and the Berlin Wall would come down. A year ago, all the experts on Russia and Ukraine said there was no way Putin was going to invade Ukraine. So, you know, the experts are repeatedly wrong. And I just think the world is far more complicated than our minds. So we'll never really understand these patterns. And so things will happen surprisingly and look like serendipity. I live in a country now where our prime minister's of Indian origin. Ireland has a prime minister of Indian origin. London has a mayor of Pakistani origin. No one 20 years ago would have guessed that was a, a likely future for us, but it's happened and it's almost entirely uh, positive. And this is where I actually think art and fiction play a role. My memory, and I may be wrong on this, that actually US, even TV, had black presidents long before Obama. <laughs> that in a way, you know, yeah. societies were being warmed up through through fiction and through the arts to other possibilities, even yeah. if the sort of political mainstream and the experts thought it was very unlikely. And one, I've actually just written another book on imagination, which comes out next month on just on art. And um, more and more, I've become convinced all of the different arts, they don't, they don't, they're not very good at predicting the future. They're not very good at actually designing future societies, but they play this crucial role in just opening us up, loosening up our, our brains, as it were, to alternative possibilities, some of which then materialize in rather nice ways, some of which are a bit scary too. I call Obama a little bit of, of this the 24 effect. And I'm not sure if you remember the show, but you know. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. was, yeah, I had a black president long before Obama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. David David Palmer, right? Like we saw him in the first season running for office yeah. and, you know, Jack Bauer had to like do something to save him. I can't quite remember. But at the time, 24 was novel. Yeah. Right. And in a in a post 9-11 world, we this is what we wanted to see, right? This kind of lone Avenger doing whatever it takes to stop the bad guys who, again, were usually like dark. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, um, yeah. And then he becomes president. He does get assassinated, but we find out it's like his wife. Sorry for those who are like not 24 officially. <laughs> Spoiler alert, and, yeah. Yeah, don't remember the the story. But I, I honestly do feel like David Palmer character, I think his first name was 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 David, really set the stage for Obama differently than Morgan Freeman and other black presidents that we've seen in movies. Because they were always presidents when it was like a disaster. Right. Right. Like Morgan Morgan Freeman's president and the asteroids coming. Right. <laughs> and it's like, fuck. Yeah. Right. We finally got a black dude and now that shit's about to be over. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think this I think there is a political subconscious. I think every society has a kind of layer or two down in our consciousness, which creates space for new ways of thinking, uh, like different kinds of people in positions of power, different gender relationships. Different, you know, and and I think the arts, in all in their widest sense, feed that subconscious, which then makes other things more possible in, as it were, the uh, the real world. And you know, I, I want to stay on the arts for a second because I, I wrote down in my notes about like Octavia Butler, mm -hmm. who's a, a a very well known writer, science fiction, speculative fiction, whatever we want to call it nowadays, and it's it's very pop. Like there are many posters and and t-shirts out there particularly since like when trump was in office that would say like octavia butler was right right or octavia butler knew this all along right because she has a, a series of books parable of the sower which kind of describes an america that feels very much trumpian right and this book was written like in the 90s i think and so entire communities have sort of I think she's more popular than ever, you know, like one of her uh, books, Kindred, has been adopted into a, a series on Hulu. And she's someone who I think is enjoying, I don't know if I would call it a resurgence, but why I bring her up is that one, she's brilliant, was brilliant. And a lot of her work is firmly in this place of imagination and hope, right? That if we're going to create a future, the whole idea of the parable of the sower is that we need to build it as we go. We're co-creating this thing. And the person who's kind of embodies it in the book is not the keeper of the knowledge solely, right? It's all about like building all these communities. So I wonder in a way, why are we not going to other thinkers, other thoughts? Like 
you know, I'm tired of like Neil Stevenson, right? And and other people like him, right? Like I'm not no offense to him, but I feel like our future is also dominated still by sort of this steampunk, cyberpunk, these kind of hacker types that all look and feel the same. A lot of dudes, right? And there's other folks out there, like an Octavia Butler, like an Ursula Le Guin, who you reference in the book who have had drastically different ways of looking at the future that have been kind of not as prevalent. You know, they're not as used by the people who control the narratives, right? So I'm like, how do we introduce and offer just thinking from different places, right? Because a lot of times I'll talk to like so-called futurists, which I hate that term, but whatever. And I'll ask them questions and they just reference the same shit to me over and over and over again. It's like the same books, the same stuff, the same. And I'm like, how how are, how are you a serious person, right? Like you're just talking about the same shit that everybody else talks about, right? So I'm curious from your perspective, if we're going to have a conversation about imagination, I call it like opening up the filter, right? Like the smaller our imagination filter is, the more limited the outcomes are going to be. But if we start to like pour and expand that filter, we have more options, right? Because now we're seeing more perspectives. So what are your thoughts on yeah. on what I just dumped on you? <laughs> I totally agree with that. And and in, in writing the book, uh, Another World is Possible, helped by COVID lockdowns, which had their upsides, I went back to a lot of the older utopian literature and just taking feminism, you know, I was surprised to discover there are feminist utopias from the 15th century, from the 17th century, the 18th century, an extraordinary tradition of very vivid writing, which was far ahead of its time uh, and didn't actually have much in- influence until later. And then you mentioned Ursula Le Guin, you know, back in the 60s, there was a whole surge of utopian writing from her, Marge Piercy, all sorts of other people which wasn't just about physical stuff. It wasn't like the mainstream sci-fi, which was all hardware, boys boys stuff. It was about social arrangements and often about the nuance. It wasn't portraying idealized societies. It's societies which have difficulties and frictions and and trade-offs. To me, what's surprising since then, since really the early 70s, and Octavia Butler, who I mentioned this new book, actually is, is the exception in a way who proves the rule. There has been a continuous stream, a huge stream of dystopian writing of all kinds about horrible techno futures, eco futures, and so on. But they're nearly always dark and miserable and very, very little more constructive, positive work. And that's, again, that's why she stands out. Kim Stanley Robinson has attempted a little bit of this as well around things like climate change. But by and large, in film or TV or novels, is I, I can think of no to big selling mass popular utopias for the last half century. And I think exactly as you said, one of the effects of that is that millions and millions of people haven't had those filters removed, haven't been able to explore other possible worlds, to think speculatively, to think they sort of what if thoughts, you know, what if there was no private property? What if there was no, you know, hierarchy or no board? All these sort of what if questions which get you thinking. And of course, the world is not quite as plastic as that. You can't sort of literally remake it with a blueprint. But these are useful because we live in a human constructed world. We live in a world where our institutions only work because of our imaginations, which allow us to believe that you know a piece of paper represents money, or that someone who stands up with the office of president actually has the right to you know, launch a war. These are necessary fictions. They don't have a, you know, they're they're not sort of grounded in nature or anything like that. And once you realize that, you realize they're fictions we can remake, that we own our future. We're not just, you know, slaves of what we've inherited. So this is where I think engagement with exactly that kind of utopian writing, with thinking radically and flexibly is a crucial, it's like a muscle for any society to help it take control of its own destiny. And I, I fear the novelists the poets, the filmmakers, the TV makers have rather let us down. They've gone to the easy land of dystopia, which is quite easy to do, but they actually, as a result, feed an excessive fatalism, an excessive pessimism about our prospects for the future. And when I do presentations, I use a, a slide of The Walking Dead, right? Like, because I, you know, as a show, I'm like, it was massively popular. Obviously, it's, it ended its run, but you know, we have so caught up this idea of 
a walking dead future, right? Like maybe not in the zombie, the actual zombies, but this idea that, you know, it's me against you, right? Like it, it's it's one of the things that always frustrated me about the show, despite this kind of sloppy narrative. Um, the comic is much better for fans out there. Read, read the comic. Um, it seemed to me an implausible dystopia, not because of the zombies, but because of this idea that if we are facing something like zombies, metaphorically or in reality, mm. it makes more sense for those of us who are not zombies to band together. To band together, exactly. Human beings collaborate. Yeah. And the whole show was always Rick's crew against some other crew, right? Like they got a compound, you don't, I got to take it. And it would be like, why would we do that, right? Like why is the first thought that when something goes wrong, human beings are going to now be fighting tooth and nail because I've, I've not been in, in incredible, like altering situations like that, but I, I was in nine 11 as an active person because of where I worked. I saw it happen. I was literally blocks away now trying to flee Manhattan as it's unfolding. Mm. And what I experienced that day was not that right. Like in all of its uncertainty and all of its kind of chaos, I did not experience people pushing each other out of the way, yeah. trying to do whatever. I experienced the opposite, right? So I was all, I'm always befuddled by these fictions that, that show me the opposite, right? Like how and why? <laughs> We're, I mean, human beings are pretty good at collaborating and cooperating. I was two weeks ago in, in southern India visiting a, an extraordinary tribal community, and they're right at the very bottom of the, the social system, even underneath the untouchables in the, the Indian caste system. And they had you know, banded together to take over tea plantations, create hospitals, to create schools, and so on. And you know, it, was a, it was a very inspiring sign of social solidarity. And I was revisiting them because 20 years ago I visited and we actually brought some of them over to visit poor communities in the UK to try and inspire people to, you know, not be too fatalistic about their prospects. However, you know, weak and powerless and disenfranchised you feel, actually there are ways you can organize together to take control of your destiny. And they were doing so in India with far fewer, you know, financial or, uh, you know, human capital resources than, than elsewhere. And for me, in a way, this is key, I think, to thinking about the future. One can do that as a sort of cerebral activity and read books. But in my experience, it's much better to be doing stuff because the experience of action and making change actually gives you confidence that the broader system can be changed. And I think one of the problems with campuses and universities, and I'm in one now, is they're often actually so detached from their societies that, again, they get into this unrealistic pessimism and fatalism because they only ever experience things at one remove through reading books or articles or, or TV and therefore don't get a sense of actually how makeable the world around us is. Yeah, we, we need more activism, right? And, <laughs> and I think that's that's what I've I've like you know in the streets activism and that's the tradition that I was kind of talking about and and I I remember seeing like Jimmy Carter our former president's daughter getting arrested with Stevie Wonder fighting against apartheid right and mm. I was like what's apartheid <laughs> right and so it, it kind of <laughs> yeah but that was my awakening to that I didn't know what apartheid South Africa was at that time but I learned through their activism right and and I think all of this is made up, right? Like, which is the the funny thing about it. When people talk about holidays and they'll be like, oh, we can't have another holiday. That's just made up. I'm like, all holidays are made up, right? Like <laughs> Halloween is not a real thing, right? Like it's, it's not something that comes from like nature. Even Christmas was made up. Yeah. No, Christmas is the most, Christmas is the most <laughs> and, made up shit ever. <laughs> and it was moved three months just that as a pra pragmatic uh, act, you know, we we live in a world of fictions and imagination. That's how human societies work. And at first, that can be a frightening thought, but I think it becomes an empowering thought because you realize you can you can remake every bit of it. Absolutely, you know, Christmas, Arbor Day, <laughs> Thanksgiving, the stories around them, all of them shits are made up. <laughs> so we got it. We got to get more into the world, right? And and make these changes. I, I want to get to the final two segments of the mm -hmm. show, or we're going to be end up doing this forever. And I know you got other things to do. Um, I want to ask. Um, the first segment is off the dome, which is just a, a quick rapid fire question. Questions plural. And so I have two. Oh God. Yeah. Um, one of them is a question that I've asked. I've asked 
guest in the past, but it seems particularly appropriate given the nature of our conversation, which is my ancestors versus descendants question. Mm. Can If you can go into the past and meet your ancestors or go into the future and meet your descendants, which one would you choose? I would actually go to the past. I love history. And I spent uh, a few weeks last summer in Ireland visiting the graves of various ancestors and trying to get into their brains. And my terror of visiting my descendants is what if there's nobody there? What if the world has wiped itself out? That would be a slightly depressing uh, trip to make. So I'll, I'll go for the past, I'm afraid. There you go. All right. My other question is, when we start thinking about this other world, right, and making it into a, a reality, a new imagined reality, what is one thing that is indispensable in your mind to that world existing? I can't answer that question because I say a lot of my, my book and my work now is on actually the quite complicated task of describing and defining and thinking through a zero carbon economy, a future care system, and so on. And in a way, my main message is this isn't about a single thing from which you then deduce everything else like the market fundamentalists believe. It's about thinking pluralistically, about combinations mm. and how they work together. So I'm rejecting your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, that's good. A punt, a, a reasoned punt is fine. Okay. Right? Because that's, that's an answer in and of itself, you know? And I want to get to the final segment of the show, which is called The Drop. And The Drop is an opportunity for both you and I to share something of interest with our listeners. And it could be anything at all. It doesn't need to be serious. It can be whatever. My drop, I'll go first, mm -hmm. is a book. Mm -hmm. I, I've had this book like in my Amazon cart for like years and I never got it. One, because it was just fucking expensive. Then um, it just, I saw it recently and it was like fraction of the cost. It's like a used, a used textbook kind of thing. And I was like, ah, oh, this is my opportunity. I'm going to grab it. And, and it's called The Fractal Geometry of Nature. And it is by um, Benoit B. Mandelbrot, who I probably murdered the name, the last name, but close enough. And and over the past couple of years, I've, I've really gotten like fascinated and really interested in complexity and, and the fractal nature of relationships. And people might not know what fractals are, but they're just these geometric and and just really interesting way in which relationships cascade and grow and they exist in in nature in many ways and what i offer is that i think they exist in the way we interact with each other as people and so i've been really fascinated about that and so i've been kind of digging through this book over the holiday season and again it's called the fractal geometry of nature and that's my drop fantastic i actually saw him speak twice Benoit Mandelbrot. Really? And he, was, he, and he was created extraordinary beauty. He was a computer scientist, but he also, in the fractals, created things with such influence in art. So he's a, he's a great, great choice. I'll just offer sort of two little snippets, that's okay. So one is a very short book, which I just read last week, called The War of the Poor. And it's, an it's only 100 pages long, and it mainly describes a peasant's revolt in Germany in the 16th century. But it goes through all these times when the poor basically said, we're not going to stand for it anymore, and went and killed the rich in large numbers. And it's a stunningly well-written uh, book. The film, though, the other thing I saw last week because I was in India is RRR, which you may have seen. If you haven't, it's the biggest grossing Indian film, I think, of all time, certainly internationally completely crazy, completely over the top, portrays the British as sadistic bastards uh, as, as they, and these freedom <laughs> fighters fight against them in the empire. So as a Brit, you watch it with a sort of rather strange mix of emotions, especially when if you're an Indian, realize everyone else has seen this movie where your you know, compatriots are the ultimate villains. It's ludicrous, incredible CGI, but fantastic dance scenes and energy and imagination. Okay. And it's about three hours long, but just if you if just watch the trailer and maybe you'll like it and then watch the whole film. It's so refreshing to see a completely different take on history and who the villains and the goodies are if you're brought up on Hollywood and, you know, British film and TV. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely check that out. It's it sounds. I wouldn't expect it to see dance numbers in in where where you started, <laughs> but it's all a musical. I'm, yeah. I'm in. <laughs> I'm, I'm in. Yeah, yeah. Give it a try. <laughs> no, those those are awesome drops. I I appreciate them, and you know, Sir Jeff, I really appreciate this conversation. Like I said, we've been 
going back and forth to get it done for a while. And I'm glad we were able to do it. I want to thank you so much for your work, all of your work. Um, I want to thank you in particular for Another World is Possible. If it sounds like you're working on a, a follow-up or an addendum, it could be an opportunity for us to do this again. <laughs> so right. I'm, I'm already thinking about our future um, conversations, even as we wrap this one. Um, so I want to thank you again for being on. Thank you. And, th- and have a great 2023. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.